It's a really lovely morning, isn't it? God for the sunshine. You know, I mentioned last week, uh, I think it was last week, a comment by Spurgeon during what was the downgrading debate uh, way back in the 1800s, 1880, I think it was, somewhere around about that. And I was reading another bit from Spurgeon just in this connection and he was speaking in 1888 and you know he could have been speaking in 2008 when when you read this and he's been uh, a little bit aggressive here and the sermon was entitled Progressive Theology and he, he put a subtitle Anything Arianism Anything Arianism Anything <laughs> Arianism <laughs> And here's what he said It is thought to be mere bigotry To protest against the mad spirit Which is now loose among us Pan indifferent and indifferentism <laughs> Is rising like the tide Who can hinder it? We are all to be as one, even though we agree in next to nothing. It is a breach of brotherly love to denounce error. Hail holy charity. Black is white and white is black. The false is true and the true is false. The true and the false are one. Let us join hands and never again mention those barbarous old-fashioned doctrines about which we are sure to differ. Let the good and sound men for liberty's sake shield their advanced brethren, or at least gently blame them in a tone which means approval. After all, there is no difference, except in the point of view from which we look at things. It is all in the eye, or as the vulgar say, it is all my eye. In order to maintain an open union, let us fight as for dear life against any form of sound words, since it might restrain our liberty to deny the doctrines of the word of God. This spirit is in all the churches, more or less. Indeed, it seems to be in the air. The prince of the power of the air is loosed in an extraordinary manner for a season misleading even the godly and triumphing greatly in those whose willing minds yield full assent to his deceitful teachings. Those were strong words from him, weren't they? And in that respect, listen to this. And we have all these people running back to Rome. The Pope speaking in Italy, in Pompeii. Benedict XVI placed the world in Mary's hands during his one-day visit to the Shrine of Our Lady of the Rosary near Naples. We implore you to have pity today on the nations that have gone astray, on all Europe, on the whole world, that they might repent and return to your heart. The text of the prayer reads. 
With the words of Bartolo, the pontiff turned to Mary, the statue obviously, saying, If you will not help us, because we are ungrateful and unworthy children of your protection, we will not know to whom to turn. In a gesture of filial love, the Pope then offered the Madonna a golden rose. The shrine contains an image of Mary to which hundreds of miracles and healings are attributed. He goes on, Here at Mary's feet, families rediscover or reinforce the joy of love that keeps them united. The secret of Pompeii, the Holy Father revealed, and that's where the, the statue is, is the rosary. This prayer leads us through Mary to Jesus. goes on, the rosary is a contemplative prayer that is accessible to all, great and small, lay people and clerics, cultured and uncultured. The rosary is a spiritual weapon in the struggle against evil, against all violence, for peace in hearts, in families, in society and in the world. The Pope course justifies praying the rosary as a means of practicing contemplative prayer and finding inner silence. This same unbiblical contemplative prayer is being promoted by the emerging church as a means of getting closer to Jesus and not only in the emerging church and in many other places as well where you least expect it as a means of getting closer to Jesus. Such practices rooted in Eastern mysticism are very effective in getting in contact with the demonic realm. However, particip participants are being deceived and do not recognize the danger. And he went on, he was talking again about the rosary, this popular Marian prayer is a vital spiritual means to increase our intimacy with Jesus and to learn in the school of the Blessed Virgin always to carry out the divine will. Yet in order to be apostles of the rosary, it is necessary to gain a personal experience of the beauty and profundity of this prayer. So simple and universally accessible. The rosary is a school of contemplation and of silence. At first sight it may seem like a prayerful accumulation of words and hence not necessarily compatible with the silence which is rightly recommended for meditation and contemplation. In reality though, this regular repetition of the Ave Maria does not disturb inner silence, rather it nourishes it. The Pope recalled that as in the case of the Psalms in the Liturgy of the Hours, that's one of their, their, their means of prayer, Silence rises up through the words and phrases, not as a vacuum, but as a presence of ultimate meaning which transcends the words themselves and together with them speaks to the heart. Even when prayed in large groups, we've all heard that, rosary being prayed in large groups, the rosary must be seen as a contemplative prayer. And this cannot come about if an atmosphere of inner silence is lacking. And... Uh, so on. Oh, steer clear, for God's sake, steer clear of the Church of Rome. But there we are. 
it's all such a mixture out there. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. I'm going to read just a few verses of Deuteronomy 19, starting at verse 15. And it's about witnesses. Witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin. In any sin that he sinneth, at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, <clears throat> before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witness be a false witness, and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he hath thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And those who, which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. God will help us to learn something from that passage today. Witnesses. Yet again, God through speaking through Moses appears to us to labor a point. You know, only a short time ago we we had Moses telling the people about witnesses. And here he seems to be giving, giving much the same message as he had done just a while previously. You must remember that Moses was speaking he was speaking to these the congregation who were all there listening to him in a continuous talk. You know, he wasn't speaking in chapters and verses. He was giving this continuous talk. And so he, he just came back to the subject which he had been speaking about a, a while back. Where, I wonder where the people surprised. He said this before. We, we mentioned this type of thing as well before. We don't know what they thought, but we know that God had something to say to these people. And he wasn't just repeating it just for the sake of repeating it and so that we'd have a little bit more knowledge in, the, in, in, in our Bible just to fill up a bit of space. God had a special message he wanted from these few verses here. You see, the whole question of falsehood is and was abhorrent to God. And here he's on about false witnesses. Right from the beginning of the commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. And then throughout Scripture, God warns against all forms of falsehood. False witnessing, false report, Exodus 
23, one thou shalt not raise a false report. The, the spies who went to spy out the land, they came back with a, a false report. Only, only Joshua and Caleb came back with a true, a, a completely true report. The others came back with a false report. False words. And then we have false ways. Psalm 119, 128. I hate every false way. Oh, there are people today proclaiming the way to God can be within each one's own ideas of God. There's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. God says, I hate every false way. In Proverbs 17.4 A wicked doer giveth heed to false lips. False lips. And then the, the, the Bible speaks out of false business dealing. Proverbs 20.23 20, Diverse weights are an abomination unto the Lord and a false balance is not good. We, we've seen so many diverse business dealings in these past six months or so false talking about false, balance, false balances false bank balances uh, uh, have been so much to the fore not exactly what it means here but it's, it's just deceit within the business community and then of course false prophets Jeremiah 14 14 then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. Oh yes, we have plenty of false prophets. Benny Hinn and his crowd we have Rick Joyner, we have all these people, Copeland, false prophets. God hates them. False dreams, Jeremiah 23, 32. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord. And do tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies. The people are being led astray in churches today by false prophets and false dreams and false doctrine and God hates it he says yes and it says they do err by their lies and by their lightness oh yes everything has to be light and easy no sound doctrine doctrine is too heavy keep them happy keep everything light and cheerful and bright God is saying here that causing my people to err by their lies and by their lightness yet I sent them not nor commanded them therefore they shall not profit this people at all saith the Lord false oaths Zechariah 8.17 and let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor and love no false oaths people who are prepared to lie through their teeth God says all these things I hate saith the Lord 
Christ's own words. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You see verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. You know, God could see that there were going to be people who would rise up and say deceitful and false witness. In order to eliminate this problem, God says that any crime for which a man is accused must be confirmed by two or three witnesses agreeing together. But even then, there will come a time when a false witness comes along, hoping to gain the upper hand against his neighbor. So God could foresee this. God knew, as he stated in Genesis, God knew that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But that still goes today, doesn't it? And so, the remedy was, was very good. Well, obviously it was good. It was God-given. If somebody arose against any testify, to, to testify falsely against someone, then both the men, verse 17, between whom the controversy was, this is important, shall stand before the Lord before the priests and the judges which shall be in those days they were to stand there as if in the presence of God to stand there before the Lord and those priests and judges who were appointed by God would declare judgment they would seek out make diligent inquisition and if it was proved that the witness was a false witness, then the answer was quite remarkable. If he had accused the, the, the chap of a murder, for instance, his life was at stake. He had to be punished with the false witness crime that he was accusing his neighbor of. And so on. It says it out very clearly, a life shall go for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, and that you are not to show compassion. Let thine eye shall not pity, but life for a life, and so on. And you know, today in our courts, very much the same principle was brought in many years ago. The laws of our land were firmly based on the moral code of scripture. And sadly that is lacking, isn't it? You see, when a person still goes into court, he has to swear by Almighty God, as if he was standing there in the presence of God. I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Would to God that these were observed, and this principle was still observed, in 
our Houses of Parliament and that the new laws were introduced with this thought in mind that a law was introduced as if standing in the presence of God sadly that is not the case if you look at Matthew Matthew 26 and verse 59 we have the trial the mockery of a trial of Jesus verse 59 now the chief priests and the elders and the whole Sanhedrin sought false witnesses against Jesus so that they might put him to death and they found none though many false witnesses came forward but at the last two false witnesses came forward we have it again in Mark Mark chapter 14 Mark 14 56 and many bear false witness against him but their witness agreed not together going on to 59 verse 59 Mark 14 59 but neither so did their witness agree together how abhorrent this whole thing was the trial of Jesus the chief priest and the elders and the members of the Sanhedrin those charged with the upholding of the law of God were quite happy to seek out those who would testify falsely against the Son of God and then accept their testimony you see this principle of witnessing was carried right through scripture and I was thinking about this and I suppose those people generally who witnessed against Jesus should in fact have been crucified if the law had been carried out to its ultimate conclusion as we see there in, in Deuteronomy but let's look at 1st John chapter 5 and we read just a few verses you know John in particular speaks a lot about witnessing and testimony in his gospel and in his epistle you know this passage in 1st John is, if I, is difficult but I just want to, to see how John points to three witnesses as to who Jesus really is the false witnesses were brought in by the Sanhedrin and by the chief priest and their, their witness didn't agree but here we have a passage written by John and it points to three witnesses that do agree you know John in his short epistles can say some things which on the surface seem very simple and easy to understand but when you start looking into them they're quite difficult to get to grips with something he says many profound things wrapped up in simple language 
And I'm going to read this in, I think it's the Darby translation. John, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ is begotten of God. And everyone that loves him that has begotten loves also him that is begotten of him. Hereby know we that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. What he's saying is that if we love God then we ought to love one another. It's a natural extension of our love of God and his love dwelling in us then that should be shown in our actions. Hereby know we that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. It's a cause and effect both ways. Verse 4 For all that has been begotten of God gets the victory over the world. And this is the victory which has gotten the victory over the world, our faith. All this, all these benefits are through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We put our faith and trust in him and we therefore then love God and we should love the brethren. Verse 5 then. Who is he that gets the victory over the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who is the one that gets victory over the world? It's he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he that came by water and blood, Jesus the Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that bears witness, for the Spirit is the truth. For they that bear witness are three. Now this will be slightly different in your translation because there's great controversy over these few verses. For they that bear witness are three. The spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has witnessed concerning his Son. So we have three witnesses, and then we have the witness of God. He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that does not believe has made God, made him a liar. Made God a liar. Because he has not believed in the witness which God has witnessed concerning his Son. And this is the witness, that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. Very clear. You see, verses 1 to 4 there shows what occurs in the believer when he accepts the sacrifice of the Son of God for himself and the fruit that 
should be evident in his life as a result. That seems to me to sum up the first four verses. He that believes that Jesus is the Christ. And then he's begotten of God. He's born again of the Spirit of God. And because of that, then he should produce this fruit, showing the evidence of him being born again. And now, and then we come to verse 5. Who is he that gets the victory over the world? And then that question is answered. It is he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who is it? Who benefits? Who is it that is benefiting from the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, that he's begotten of God? Who is that person? He's the one, it says, that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then John goes on to say who this Jesus Christ is and the witnesses which confirm his truthfulness. And he goes on to explain who Jesus is. He says, This is he that came by water and blood, Jesus the Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit that bears witness, for the Spirit is the truth. Verse again, verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood and the three agree in one. Not one witness, not even two witnesses, but three witnesses all agreeing as to who Jesus Christ is. Look at them again. What briefly are these three witnesses? Water and blood and the Spirit. See, man through Adam, the first Adam, is a lost, guilty sinner before a righteous God. For Adam, for as in Adam, all die. The Son of God, the second Adam, came to seek and to save that which was lost. Christ came in the form of man, perfect man and perfect God. And being became flesh and dwelt among us and be found in the likeness of man. He came in the form of sinful man but he came as sinless spotless man and God and we guilty of death through the first Adam can now through the death of the second Adam the Lord Jesus Christ find peace with God he tasted death for every man the answer to my dire need my lost condition is found in the blood and the water that flowed from my Saviour's side. John witnessed the soldier piercing the body of Christ. It was witness to Christ's humanity. But it also presented me with atonement and expiation before a righteous and just God. 
Guilty, violent, helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Saviour. The blood of the Son of God atoned for my sin. Through his shed blood I have forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And the water signifies the cleansing power of the death of the Son of God. Perhaps there's some reference to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ when the Spirit descended on him. That was great evidence to those around that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. You know, we have a powerful picture of, of this in 2 Kings chapter 5. You hardly need to turn to it, but we'll have a quickly look at it. 2 Kings 5, the story of Naaman the leper. We all know the story so well, don't we? Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king, and you know what his name meant? His name meant pleasantness. Pleasantness, isn't it? Isn't that lovely? Given the name of pleasantness, they obviously seemed to be live up to his name. He was captain of the host of Syria, was a great man with his master. He was honourable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was a mighty man of valour, a trusted man of integrity, but he was a leper. Oh, he had all those wonderful attributes, but he was a leper. The prophet of God told him to go and wash in the Jordan. He dipped himself in the Jordan and came out cleansed of his leprosy. Now leprosy in scripture is a type of sin. We don't read of, as far as I'm aware, of Jesus healing the lepers. He cleansed the lepers. And Christ cleanses us. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. We all need to be cleansed of our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Naaman, when he went into the water, he, he went in a, a dead man because that leprosy was going to kill him. But he came out in type, a new man, cleansed of the leprosy. He had a new attitude. He was under a new head. Because we, we see his attitude to the God of Israel a few verses further on. And he said, I will no longer pray to these false gods. He, he said, when I bow myself, uh, I, I, I'm going into the, the rimmen with my master, but I'm never going to worship false gods again. He changed. His attitude was changed. He was under new management. A figure, a figure of you and me when we are cleansed of our sins, we start a new life in Christ Jesus through the blood of Jesus Christ. Just a picture. 
We are new creations. What can wash away my stain? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The water and the blood signifies the cleansing of the sinner through faith in Christ, thereby answering the question in verse 5 that we, we, we drew attention to. Who is he that gets victory over the world? The one who is cleansed, washed in the blood of Christ. This cleansing is never repeated. This is important. You know, Jesus speaking to Peter in John 13.10, he said to Peter, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. It was looking back to the time when the priests were consecrated. He was washed all over in the Old Testament. The priest was washed all over. He was cleansed in figure. And that was never done again. But when he went to, to, to uh, perform ceremonies in the, the tabernacle or elsewhere, he washed his hands and his feet. And that's the picture Jesus was saying here. He that is washed needed not save to wash his feet. We are cleansed, but daily we need to come for cleansing as we live in a wicked, sinful world. We become dirty, our hands and our feet. And as we come to offer our sacrifice of praise to God, we need to come daily to be cleansed from the grime and the dirt that we have picked up as we walk through this world. That's why it says in scripture. Let every man examine himself. When he comes to the Lord's table. So that we can get rid of all that we have gathered up. And cleanse. Cleanse me from my sin Lord. Put thy power within me. Take me as I am. And make me all thy own. There's an interesting thing in verse 6. If you look at verse 6 again, it says, He came by water and blood, Jesus the Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. You see, when we come to Jesus Christ for cleansing, He forgives us our sins, we are new creations in Jesus Christ, and He renews our moral life as well as our spiritual life. We're new creations. He didn't just come with blood. He came by water and blood. He, he sanctifies us. He cleanses us daily as we come to him for cleansing. But you know, there are many churches today and many people going around tonight who deny the sacrifice of Christ. Deny the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They wish to be cleansed by living a moral life without all this talk of 
propitiation by blood. Scripture says that Christ came to shed his blood for sinful man. A salvation without the blood of Christ is not taught in Scripture. And then we have the third witness, the Spirit of God. He is the living power that communes with our spirits, confirming that we are the children of God. And Jesus is the Son of God. And we also have the picture of the Spirit descending on Christ when he came up out of the water of baptism. Powerful proof, a powerful witness as to who Jesus was. Look what it says. And for this is the witness of God which he has witnessed concerning his Son. He that believes on the Son of God has the witness the Spirit of God within himself. And this is the witness that God has given to us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son has life. And that the Holy Spirit comes and witnesses to us within ourselves. So we have the three witnesses all agreeing and describing and presenting Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us at Calvary. And that brings us right back to what we read in Deuteronomy 19. One witness shall not rise up against a man for anything, but at the mouth of two or three witnesses. And the point is that these three witnesses mentioned here should all agree at the trial of the Lord Jesus. They brought in witnesses, but they were false witnesses, and they didn't agree. So we have these three witnesses. And they, it says, as we read, for they, bear, they that bear witness are three, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three agree in one. Amen.